Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at What does it actually mean for us in this picture of Jesus coming into the world? Is it just something that we celebrate once a year, the birth of Christ at Christmas, a baby in a manger, God coming into the world to dwell among us, to live with us, Emmanuel, God with us? Is that, is that just something we celebrate once a year? Or is there a reality that God is doing this within our hearts, within our minds, within our lives every single day where light is coming into darkness and it's pushing back that darkness. So much so that John 1 says the darkness cannot overcome the light. And so there's this power within us of Jesus Christ who is doing things within our lives on a daily basis that we shouldn't just celebrate once a year, but that we should celebrate every single day what he is accomplishing. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to look at um, specifically verses 9 through 13 today. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 just to kind of catch you up over the last couple of weeks And then just see exactly what God is doing when he says light comes into darkness. So in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that was week one that we covered in our Advent series with the idea that the word, namely Jesus Christ himself, is fully God. So Jesus coming in, a baby being born in a manger is not just some type of created spiritual being um, that is not God, that is just kind of submitting himself to God, that's doing the work of God, but this is actually God himself putting on flesh, coming into our world as a baby in a manger. Everything was made through Jesus, and there's no life that exists apart from his power and his might. So us being able to celebrate Sullivan is because through Jesus, Sullivan was made. He's in existence because Jesus thought him into existence, spoke him into existence, intricately wove him into existence. This is Psalm 139, that we have a fearful and wonderful God who is creating life, who's creating life. And he's also the light that shines in the darkness. And when it comes to the light and the darkness having a fist fight, the light's going to win every single time. Darkness cannot overcome it, will not overcome it. And we can trust every single time that Jesus is always going to win. And then the second week we read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. One of the amazing things that God does in his redeeming, saving work is that he employs you and me to play a part in his ministry, in his mission. 
It's really interesting to see whenever you trace back through the people of God that every time God moves, God says, I'm going to do something. And if you were any of the prophets of old, if you were Moses, if you were Aaron, if you were Joshua, if you were Jeremiah, if you were any of the guys in the Old Testament who had a part, they would look at God and say, why do you need me if you're the one that's going to accomplish fill in the blank, whatever it is God wants to do. But the way that God brings about his plan, his work, is by grabbing somebody and employing them into his ministry to do the work that he has called them to do. That is ultimately putting on display his glory, his power, his might through what we call viceroys, agents of reconciliation. And so they are heralds, if you will. And so that week we looked at not only John the Baptist being a herald, being someone who would come before Jesus to prepare the way of Jesus. Literally, John the Baptist's ministry was just to tell the people, don't miss the Messiah. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss the person who can actually come in and fix every issue in your life, who can fix you, who can reconcile you in a relationship with God. Don't miss him. And then when we looked at the birth of Jesus, we looked at the heralds that were in play there. When it comes to heralding the birth of a child, the news of a baby, most of the time people would call in the professionals in order to come and herald the news. They would actually get heralds to do this. But God employs the people that you would least likely expect him to employ, which were in the first century, those who are on the lowest of the totem pole, the shepherds. Shepherds were men of ill repute. They were people that you would not trust. They were ones that you would not want heralding the news of your child being born. But this gives hope to us because at the end of the day, we're all like the shepherds. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And he uses us in order to display this wonderful news. It gives hope to me because I feel like the shepherds all the time. It just gives me hope that God employs people that you would not expect to display his beauty, his glory. And then it leads us to today. Verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray before we dive into these, these verses here. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing. Through the songs that we are singing about you, through the prayers that we are praying to you, to this scripture that is testifying who you are. God, I pray that as we walk through these things and as we come together as a people I pray that your message would reveal in our hearts and in our minds the areas where we trust in our own selves rather than you. I pray that we would be able to see clearly the darkness that is in our lives, the darkness that is around us, and that we would see that you are the light that is coming into our darkness and pushing it back and defeating it so that we can be illuminated from within our hearts and in our minds to see that you are our greatest treasure. You are our greatest satisfaction. You are our greatest pleasure. That there is nothing in this world worth more than you. 
And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this passage today, as we read it, as we meditate on it, as I preach on it, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would guide us in understanding your good news so that we would respond rightly by faith, trusting and believing you for who you are. For it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. The first point that I want you to see from these verses in 9 through 13 is the fact that light comes into the world. Light comes into the world. John 3, 16, just a couple of chapters later, says this. And this is, I mean, if you have any type of church background, you know this verse. Um, You've heard this verse many times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the reason for light coming into the world. This is the purpose of God to send Jesus into the world is number one, because he loves the world. And John 3, 16 says that there's even some volume to his love. It's not just that he loves us, but that he so loves the world that he sends his only son that whoever believes in them would not perish, perish being a, um, a, a, a response or a reaction because of the darkness that is within us. It's, it's literally not only just a symptom of our darkness, but it's the reality of our darkness. If we are in darkness, we are perishing. And I'll give you more of that here in a moment. But because of our perishing, because of our darkness, God takes the initiative of himself to come into our world, the initiating love of God to come to us by sending his son Jesus to us, light coming into darkness in order that for those who believe in him, who trust him, who are not believing in themselves, who are not believing in Santa, who are not believing in anything else to provide them joy and satisfaction and peace and comfort, fill in the blank, whatever it is, if we believe in Christ alone, we receive this eternal life with God. We receive life with him, not just now, but forever. And so the first question to answer is, why is there a need for light to come into the world? And it's because after God created the world in Genesis 3, we see that our first parents did a bad job when it comes to baby dedication. They did a bad job when it comes to dedicating themselves to trusting in the will of God, the word of God, the plan of God. And instead, Satan comes into the picture and he tells them a different word. He says, you should not trust in the word that God gave you, but rather you should trust in my word. You should trust in in what I'm about to share with you because it's actually going to be better for you than what God has for you. And so he lies to them and in lying to them, instead of trusting God's word and being obedient to God's word for their satisfaction, for their joy, Genesis 3 says that they trust in their own eyes as they see what Satan is offering them as being pleasurable. And in some ways to them being more pleasurable than what God's offered to them. And therefore they trust in their own ability. They trust in their own understanding. They trust in their own ways and ultimately give themselves over to rebellion by just disbelieving God, not trusting what he has offered them not trusting the satisfaction that he is giving them by having a relationship with him and him alone. And instead, they enter into this relationship with Satan that ultimately causes them to sin away from God 
and now break the relationship that they have with him. God tells Adam and Eve that when they rebel against him, when they sin, the consequence of their sin is now death enters into their reality. For those who are perishing, when you believe in Christ, you get eternal life. God is is literally reversing what happens with the curse. So at one point, they had perfect life with the Father. They had perfect life. They were walking with God. Death was not in the picture. When they sinned against God, death enters into the picture to where now everything they do has death in play. Everything they do, their work has death involved. Their relationship has death involved. Literally, a part of the curse of their sin is the fact that their relationship with one another literally is going to be them fighting to destroy one another. And you see that literally play out in the first response that they have towards one another. When God comes into the garden to deal with them, they start throwing one another under the bus. Adam, what did you do? Well, it was the woman that you gave me. She caused me to sin. Eve, what did you do? She starts pushing the blame again on the serpent. Well, it was the serpent that deceived me. They're not willing to take responsibility for their own sin, but rather they push the blame on others and it begins to cause friction and and just destroying of a relationship. So much so that even God says to Eve that that she has a desire for her husband. Now that sounds actually like a good thing. But when you look at the Hebrew term for desire for your husband, it's only used one other place in scripture and it's in Genesis where it talks about sin's desire for you is crouching in order to destroy you. So what happens within us in darkness is that everything that we relate to is actually seeking to destroy us. Apart from Christ, our careers, our purposes, our paths, our whatever it is that we long for actually is seeking to destroy us. Apart from Christ, our relationships that we engage in are seeking to destroy us. And why are they seeking to destroy us? Because they're actually ultimately seeking their own gain. Apart from Christ, people only marry because they think it's going to be beneficial for them. They think it's going to be good for them. They think it's going to be something that is serving them. Everything we do apart from Christ is to seek our own rather than offering ourselves as a sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's darkness. And so God is sending his son in order to come and fix what we have ultimately broken. And not only this, but this sin from Adam and Eve is passed down to every single one of us. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Other places in scripture, it talks about the fact that sin passes down from the seed of the father. And so if you're born in this room from a father and a mother, guess what? Sorry, sin passed down to you. No one in this room is born like Jesus was born in the Immaculate Conception where he does not have a physical, earthly, biological father who has passed down seed to him. It was a miracle of the Holy Spirit coming to Eve and literally putting Jesus inside her womb in order for, her, for him to be born without the sin DNA. 
He was born perfect. He came perfectly in order for us to be able to receive a relationship that was perfect, to be able to receive Christ. And it's funny, sometimes whenever we say that like everyone's born sinners, um, especially sometimes, and I don't think, I know you guys don't think this, but first time parents are like, how dare you say my child is a sinner? And I just want to say, all you got to do is just go volunteer one time in our infant's class upstairs. You will see that babies are sinners. It's probably, it, 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 maybe not every week, but at least every other week, I'm hearing stories of so-and-so's baby who tried to bite the face of so-and-so's baby. <laughs> and it's like, and some say, well, maybe that was like a learned trait. I don't think they're looking at their parents when they disagree, walking around trying to bite one another's face. Like sin is there. It's who they are. It's their identity when they are apart from Christ. It's all of our realities. And when we're born, and as we grow, and as we make decisions in life, apart from Christ, we know nothing else other than to make our decisions from the foundation of a sinful identity. How is this going to serve me? How is this going to gain my own pleasure? How is this going to be something that I can spend in some way that is going to work out for my benefit rather than others? And God says, I'm gonna flip the script on this entire thing. And so he sends his son. Here's the reality. The world you and I live in is a world, as Colossians 1 says, it's a domain of darkness. And it's not a domain of darkness because of Hollywood. It's not a domain of darkness because of political parties. It's not a domain of darkness because of, as we kind of say, the, the us versus them mentality. It's a domain of darkness because we are involved in it. We exist. Organizations fail you because you're a part of the organization. Our church will fail you because we're a part of the church. It's imperfect. The domain of darkness exists because you exist. And the only hope we have is Jesus. He's the only hope we have. You cannot clean yourself up in order to make the domain of darkness lighter easier, more pleasurable. It's not going to work. You clean yourself up a lot like my two-year-old cleans up after himself. The other day I asked him, I said, hey, Wyatt, I said, can you go put, I'm just calling my kids out, I love it. I said, Wyatt, can you go put your uh, mac and cheese bowl in the sink, please? And I thought he did it. And then that evening, whenever I jumped on the couch to veg out for the evening, I jumped on the couch, pulled the blanket over, and I thought something feels really weird. And it was just mac and cheese that I was laying on because he thought if I just put it under the blanket, that's cleaning it up. That's how we manage our sin. 
When we try to take it into our own abilities or our own thoughts or our own intellect or our own reasoning or our own whatever it is. I got a new hobby, therefore I'm not going to sin anymore. I've got a new relationship, therefore I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going I'm to do these things in order to manage it. We just end up laying in it. And it's not clean. It reveals itself, and it reveals itself more and more over time to the point where you cannot run from it. You cannot run from it. There's two types of people. And I'm not talking like personality types where there's like eight different ones or nine different ones. Like I'm talking, there are two types of people that exist in all of the world. Those who are in the Spirit of God and those who are not in the Spirit of God. There are believers in Christ and there are non-believers. There are Christians and non-Christians. There are saints and sinners. There are in Christ and there are those who are apart from Christ. There is no other type of person. And the Apostle Paul gives us a description of these two people. And I want you to see this. It's in Galatians chapter 5. You can either turn there with me or I think it will be on the screens as well. But Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 24 puts it this way. Paul says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So here he's talking about one person who is apart from the Spirit of God, not in Christ. Here's what their works look like. Here's what their life is defined by. Here's what, if they have an option, they're going to choose this option every time from the foundation of who they are. There might be times where they can pretend to do good, pretend to be like Christ, but ultimately their foundation are these things. These are going to be the things that come out in their life. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these in case he miss anything. Like these are our reality. And here's one of the hard things for us in this room is we look at that list and we start thinking of the people in our lives. Well, I've got a neighbor who's just like that. I've got a coworker who's just like that. I've got whoever, they're just like that. We forget that especially for those who are in Christ that we once were these people. And even for those who are in Christ, our flesh still wars with us on a daily basis to do these things. In case you miss it, there was a part in here in verses, verse 17, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For those who are in Christ, your deepest desire is to see the light in you push, push back the darkness. But there's still a reality that there's darkness there. There's not one person in this room who is incapable of doing any one of these things right now. Not one person. 
Jesus coming into the world as light coming into darkness is not just a one-time thing that, awesome, I became a believer. Once saved, always saved. Never going to struggle with sin again. Never going to deal with that type of issue again. Never am I going to have whatever it is. And I'm here to argue with you. Maybe not argue, that's a bit aggressive, but I'm here to reason with you. That oftentimes for us as believers, the temptation only grows stronger because the enemy is trying to get us to not represent Christ and what he's ultimately doing in our lives. What I mean by that is when you got married, let's say you had a lust addiction before that. Did that lust addiction just happen to go away when you got married? Absolutely not. More than likely, it gets stronger over time because Satan and the enemy is trying to come after the one thing that is representing Christ and his church, the relationship. It is the gospel on display. And therefore, he wants to wreck it in every possible way. As John the Baptist is a witness of Christ, we are also called to be witnesses of Christ. So guess what the enemy is going to do for sinners? Not much. Guess what he's going to do for Christians and those who are saints? He's going to put all of his attention and all of his energy in coming after them in order to get other people to disbelieve their witness. Well, how can you be a Christian when you continue to do the things that are in this list? Why would I trust your Savior when you continue to do this? Light is continuing to push back the darkness that is within our hearts. Salvation is a lifelong process in which, yes, we are justified when Christ saves us, which means God views you as if you have never sinned. Justification is a legal term. If you're unaware with it, it's just like God, the the father is a judge in a courtroom and you come in and you sit down and your case that against you is the wrath of God, which is saying you have sinned. Death is your penalty. How do you plead your case? And if we try to clean ourselves up, what it's going to look like is, well, I've done this. I've given this. I've, I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. I've tried to do the right things. And he's going to look at us and say, you're smearing it in the cracks. Your case is not going to hold up in my courtroom. Jesus comes in as our our defense, and he comes and he sits down next to us, and he looks at the Father, and he says, I've gone to the world. Light came into darkness. I came into their lives. And every single sin that they're talking about, both their sins of omission and their sins of commission, everything that they've done, past, present, even the things that they are going to do, I've gone to the cross and I've placed it all on myself and I've taken that death penalty. It's paid in full. And therefore, God's able to look at us and say, bangs the gavel down, you're pardoned. It's paid in full. You're free to go. You're free to go. Sanctification is now the process of that justification working it out in our lives. How do I now say no to this and say yes to Jesus? Which is what the next part of this passage looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
against such things, there's no law. There's nothing from God looking at these things saying you deserve death. No, you are in Christ now. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What he's saying there is all of these passions of our flesh have been placed on Christ. Therefore, the passions of Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, is now our foundation within us. It's now our identity within us that we can now operate in and grow in on a daily basis. This is discipleship. It's telling you daily who you are in Christ. It's literally telling you how you can now act because of the power that is within you. Christ is in you. Here's how Christ responds to circumstances. He's patient. He's loving He's kind. He's good. He's gentle when he deals with you. And therefore, we begin reflecting those things out, working those things out within our lives, pushing back the darkness of the passions of our flesh, crucifying those things to Christ, literally waking up every morning and telling Jesus, Jesus, I've got some conflicting things going on in my life right now. I've got some, I still have some areas where I'm seeking my own gain. Help me crucify that to you that has already been crucified. It's the great already not yet as Martin Luther talks about. Already I am in Christ, yet I am still growing in Christ. I want to be more like him. I want to push back the darkness. And he's doing it. Verses 10 through 11 kind of talk about, this is back in John 1. Verses 10 through 11 talk about what happens when Jesus comes into the world, they did not know him nor receive him. Unfortunately, they were expecting something else. Unfortunately, they were expecting him to show up as a king on a throne and not a baby in a manger. They had their view of what light was going to look like when it came into the world. And instead of Jesus giving them what they expected... He did it only the way that he would do, and we call this kingdom economics. He takes something that is considered to be weak, and he makes it strong. So that at the end of the day, when we look at how God brought light into the world, there's no possible way that we can say we played a part other than God did all of it that he did all of it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 puts it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. So let's just think about that for a second. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. When was the last time anyone's been to a, um, a cemetery? Like maybe in the last month, anybody? Last year? Okay, a little bit more. The people who are there, can they do anything? And we're just talking from a physical perspective here. No, they're, they're dead. Spiritually, we're dead in our sins. Spiritually speaking, when you're dead, can you do anything? You're dead in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Literally, what he's saying there is the only thing you can do when you are spiritually dead in your sin is just live in it. Walk in it. Whatever that looks like, that's all we can do. In the domain of darkness, there's no exit for us. There's no map to find the hidden treasure. There's no possible way for us to say, um, how can I escalate my way out of this? How can I create a ladder? Let me build a tower. Let me do whatever I can to try to reach God in the domain of darkness. When we are spiritually dead, there's nothing we can do. But verse 4 in Ephesians 2 changes everything for us but God. Probably the two best words we ever see in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Going back to John 3, 16. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up, again, he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that, why is God doing this? Why is he sending light into the darkness? So that in the coming ages, for eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God's just wanting to show off. He's wanting us to show how amazing and wonderful and beautiful he is so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved. And this comes through faith. And this is not your own doing. I'm just reading scripture here. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Nothing you can bring to the table and say, but look what I did in order to bring this about. So that no one may boast. Who gets to boast in salvation? Christ. The Father. The Holy Spirit. God is the one boasting in salvation because he is the author of our salvation. He is the only one worth glorifying and honoring and praising when it comes to a sinner becoming a saint. When it comes to a a, a person who is trusting in their own way to shift and trust in God's way. That only happens by a miracle of God reaching out from light into darkness and rescuing and redeeming those who are apart from him. As John 1.12 says, those who believe in him become children of God. As Ephesians 2 says, even that belief is a gift. Faith is a gift from God. Everything is so that God can be seen as glorious and magnificent in our lives.
This is good news for us. This does not come from us, as verse 13 says, but from the will of God. God thought this into existence. God planned this whole thing for you to not be left in your sin, but to be rescued and redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. My hope in that is that what this does for each one of us in this room is it begins to shift perspective for us. It begins to change the way that we see our lives, the way that we steward our lives, the way that we run our lives, the way that we schedule our lives, the way that we organize our lives, the way that we literally live lifestyle that it would shift our perspective away from what can I do in order to pleasure, in order to gain satisfaction, in order to do whatever it can for my own gain. Move it away from that to how does my life now serve this great God who has redeemed me, reconciled me, brought me into a relationship with his son Jesus how does my life now look as a herald of his, as a witness of his? How can I operate my life in such a way that it is putting on display God's goodness, his mercy, his grace? How am I being a herald to those who are around me? How am I sharing this grace with those who are around me? How am I positioning myself so that others would receive satisfaction and pleasure and grace and mercy? And here's, here's kind of going back to that kingdom economics. If you're seeking your own pleasure and glory and, and grace, you actually rob yourself of pleasure and glory and grace and satisfaction. But when you're seeking the glory and satisfaction and praise and, and everything in God, you actually receive the ultimate satisfaction and pleasure. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If our ultimate aim in life, literally the reason why God creates life is so that that life would glorify him, honor him, praise him. At the end of the day, be all about Jesus. In that life being all about Jesus, that life is also receiving the ultimate life to the fullest. Money cannot buy more than the satisfaction Jesus gives you. Hobbies cannot offer more pleasure than Jesus can give you. One of my favorite hobbies is playing golf, and I can promise you it does not give me more than Jesus gives me. At the end of the day, I'm thankful that this is not from us or is it dependent on us? The reason why I'm thankful that this is not dependent on us, that we do not serve a God who says, if you would do this, then I'll do this, is because at the end of the day, and I said this a couple of weeks ago and I'll kind of catch you in on it, nobody knows you more than you do. Other than God, obviously he knows you better than you know yourself. But when it comes to just relationships, nobody knows you more than you know yourself. Therefore, you know 
the motivations behind why you do the things you do. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that those motivations for everything that we do are not always pure. They're not always genuine. Therefore, you let yourself down more than anybody lets you down. And if, it, if our salvation were based on us, I'll be the first one to tell you I'm walking away from Christianity because I know for a fact I'm going to fail myself if it's dependent upon me. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that you have to do this in order for God to do this. What the Bible teaches is that while we were enemies of his, he sent his son Jesus to love us and to save us. That while we were hostile towards him, he was merciful towards us. And he does this over and over and over again. He's patient. He's patient. And we get to celebrate this this morning. That God was patient. And that he pursued a child. And that he reached out. And he rescued this child from themselves. He rescued them from their sin. He rescued Talia. And he has brought her home to him. You see, when I paint that picture of the courtroom and him banging the gavel down and declaring you free from your sin, he's not just doing it kind of in like a law and order TV show. What he's also doing in that moment as he bangs the gavel down is he is saying, not only am I pardoning you of your sin, but I'm adopting you. You're now in my family. When you get up from your defense right now, I'm gonna get up from my seat and we're gonna walk home together because I am now your father. And all that I have is yours. That's what we get to receive in salvation. Isn't that we get the benefits of being with God? We get God. We get him. I'm so thankful for salvation. And we are about to celebrate that in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to worship you because of what you have done. God, you are the light that comes into our darkness. You illuminate our sin. You help us see the fact that we are sinners. You help us see the fact that we choose to go against you, that we choose our own way, and every single time it leads to destruction. And so, Father, you sent your son Jesus, as we are celebrating this month, to come as a baby in a manger, to grow up and live a perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve because we could not live a perfect life, and that you then rose three days later, coming back to life, guaranteeing for us that we also will be raised to a newness of life with you. And that life will live with you forever. We thank you, God, for the work that you are doing that only you can do. And we worship you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church.
For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at